Good morning. I'd like to uh, just uh, offer an invitation, uh, make an announcement. Next Sunday evening at five o'clock, we're going to, at, uh, at our house, Sally, Sally and I's house, Sally and my house, I'm never sure which way to put that, mine and Sally's house, anyway, our house, um, in, in East Drive, Oakwood, we're going, to, um, we're going to have a pilot of the Discovery Bible community that um, some of us have been pioneering over these last few months, and we're going to pilot it for other members of the church. You've heard me talk about it before, you've heard me explain the mechanisms, but of course, you need to be able to experience it for yourself and maybe bring along someone who you would like to build such a community around. Maybe you want to bring it into your house church, your household. Maybe you want to uh, develop something entirely fresh. Well, next week, we're going to be starting at our house at five o'clock. And it's just really to do a one-off. We may extend it for two weeks um, if, that's, if that's needed. And then we'll plant a new Discovery Bible community in our home at the beginning of the new year. And some of you will want to join that and be part of that so that you can kind of really feel your way into it over the next uh, few weeks and months. Uh, and some of you will say, I think I've got it, and uh, be able to go off and do it already, having just immersed yourself in it for a couple of weeks. And we'll certainly want to help and resource you as you make that bold step. But if you'd like to be part of that, then feel free to come along to our place next uh, next Sunday at five o'clock. Children are welcome. Uh, we will be having a children's discovery Bible community as well. It's amazing how good kids are at this kind of thing. And um, we'll see how we get on. All right. So you come along and you try it out and we'll see what happens. Let's read from uh, our passage today, which is Isaiah chapter nine. And this week I'm going to begin just where Naomi read to us from verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So there's our passage for Advent. This is what it is that we're looking at over these coming weeks. And last week, we looked at Wonderful Counselor. We addressed it and looked at it and, and examined it from perhaps an entirely different perspective than one that you've seen before. Certainly meeting with the elders uh, through the week, they said they'd never seen anything like it before. And this week, we're going to go on to the second couplet. We've looked at Wonderful Counselor, and this week, we're going to look at Mighty God. But as we get to the conclusion of this message, you'll begin to see 
what the connection is between wonderful counselor, mighty God, and perhaps begin to anticipate the connection between mighty God and everlasting Father. And if you're really, really clever, maybe begin to see why it is that the conclusion of these couplets is Prince of Peace. So let's just think about it from the perspective of Isaiah and the people that he first addressed with these words. He's speaking of a king that will come. He's speaking of one who will fulfill all of the prophetic messages about the kingdom of David, about the line of David. He's speaking about a king that will deliver the people from the darkness that surrounds them. Already, they were very conscious, very aware of the Assyrian army sweeping through the northern reaches of the land. The territories of Naphtali and Zebulun lay in ruins. People were dead in the streets. It was a terrible time. Darkness covered the land. And into this context of deep distress, a message is given to Isaiah. A son is going to be born. A child will come. And he will begin the government that will eventually extend to the outer reaches of the world from Galilee of the Gentiles, where currently it is as dark as it possibly could be. From that place, a great light will shine in the midst of that darkness and the light will extend to the entire world. And as they listened with hope and anticipation, they of course heard the names of this new king. Those names they would perhaps imagine would be emblazoned on the four sides of the throne on which the king sat. He would be a wonderful counselor. He would function to the nation as a father over the children of Israel. He would be a prince who would bring a sense of wholeness to them. The word shalom that we translate as peace. But there's this second couplet. And perhaps they would stumble there. Because it sounded so incongruous. How can a human king be called mighty God? How can a human king be emblazoned with the title that only Yahweh could have? It would cause them to feel unsettled. It would cause them to feel deeply disturbed because it sounded as though in the midst of the hope that Isaiah was presenting as a prophecy from God, there was something that was not simply incongruous, but surely inaccurate. How could this be true? Of course, you and I, standing from a different perspective in history, knowing the New Testament, have a sense of how it is that the Son of God becomes a human being. 
and dwells among us as Jesus of Nazareth. We know the story, but before the story's told, it must have caused a great sense of turmoil in the first hearers. Even when it seemed as though the might of God was demonstrated in the time of Hezekiah when Isaiah was prophet to the king, when the Assyrian army that had swept through the northern reaches of Israel had now taken captive all of the northern kingdom and was sweeping through the cities of Judah. 85,000 armed, vicious, bloodthirsty warriors surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Surely the end was near. Isaiah told Hezekiah to trust in the Lord, to return to the Lord, to lead the people as a man of God. And in the night, as if by divine hand, as if the angel of death that swept through Egypt long ago had been unleashed from the heavenly realms, the Assyrian army lay not simply defeated, but decimated in the field without a sword ever being drawn. Sennacherib, the emperor of the Assyrians, decided to withdraw. And it would not be for another hundred years. God's mercy extending to his people, Judah, giving them every opportunity to return to him. It would not be for a hundred years that the Babylonians, who were, if you like, the successors to the Assyrian Empire, it would not be until the Babylonians came that Jerusalem would fall and the temple be destroyed. But at the time of Isaiah, the might of God had been revealed. This mighty God was somehow going to be manifest as a human king. Deeply troubling, as I've suggested to the first hearers. And for you and I, of course, it's not as deeply troubling because, as I've suggested, we've now become familiar with the story of the incarnation of the Son of God. We've become familiar with the theology that says that the Son of God has come and has become a human being and in his humanity has lived among us and shown us the way and died for us and risen again and ascended into heaven and taken our humanity back into the Godhead, suggesting forever that we are welcome there. And so we've heard that story, and even if it's not penetrated our hearts, even if it's not changed our lives, we know the basic tenets of the Christian faith. But here, we have to pause, because there is a deep incongruity if we are to embrace the good news. There's a deep incongruity in what it is that the gospel tells us is the truth. 
I have a little video uh, that uh, I'm going to ask Claude to run for us, and um, I'm going to I'm going to read these verses to you whilst that's going on. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills everything in every way. The center point of these verses is this. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that power lives in you. Imagine standing on the edge of a volcano with all of that power beneath your feet and asking God to send fire from heaven. How stupid would that be? You stood on the very lip of a volcano every day of your life. Underneath you is immeasurable power. Within you is power that changed the universe. And yet you call down power from someplace else. Send power from the heavens, Lord. Send fire from the skies. And yet all of it's underneath your feet. Thank you, Claude. So, what's the incongruity? Well, the incongruity is this. You and I look normal. We just look like, well, I, you know, when I say normal, you know what I mean, broadly speaking. You and I are accepted as normal by the people around us. We're human beings. We do the things that we've always done. But Paul tells us, the New Testament tells us over and over again, that when we surrendered to Jesus, Jesus took that as an invitation to come and dwell within us by his Spirit. The Spirit of God lives within us. And that Spirit, that power... The third person of the Trinity who dwells within you is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, if that doesn't feel incongruous, you're probably not hearing what I'm saying. Because you get depressed, like me, when it's raining outside. And you've got the power that raised Jesus from the dead living within you. You feel fed up like me when your team doesn't win. I mean, it, it, I, I, 
I hate to admit it. It ruins my day. And yet the power of the living God rests within me. It is incongruous, isn't it? It stretches us. It, it makes us feel strange just imagining what it is that God would mean by this. And the funny thing is that if we can understand the mechanism by which this power is released, everything changes. And the mechanism of that power being released is something that you're not expecting. I can remember I was, um, I was at a conference and uh, most of my staff uh, from the church that I led in England were with me. And um, some of the staff, because it was one of these kind of camping weekends, it was a conference where people hung out and we made fires and let the kids just run around. Don't you love those Christian camps where you can just kind of say, see you kids, three days. Um, and um, it, it was a great thing. We, uh, we all enjoyed it. It was a marvelous time. One of the few occasions when I remember it was sunny in England. And... Um, some point during the conference, we were praying for the sick. And um, as I was praying for the sick, I felt like God showed me this picture in my mind of cells in a body being regenerated. And I said it out loud because I felt like the Lord really impressed upon me to say it, but I felt very, very exposed in sharing it. I felt very kind of weirdly vulnerable. One of the staff, one of my team, Paul McConaughey, some of you know him, he and his wife came forward with his wife Ellie's mother and uh, her friend. And Ellie's mother uh, came uh, to pray. And she said, that picture that you had is kind of related to the condition I have. I have a thing called scleroderma and uh, they've told me that I'm going to die because it's incurable and we began to pray and as we were praying I began to feel very very kind of exposed because I felt like God said to me tell her not to accept the prognosis as a curse. So I said that to her. And she broke down and prayed and it was a lovely time of prayer. And she went then for three months and she lived way out in the countryside of, of England, a, a, a county called Sussex, a long way from everybody. And so she would go to the country churches that were offering prayer for healing as often as she could. She'd go to a youth group, even if she uh, didn't know the youth group, and ask them to pray for her. And she would just keep on praying because she knew that the thing to do was to not allow this prognosis that her and the support group had heard because other people were in this support group with her because they needed the support because of the devastating news that they'd been given. 
And she went back three months afterwards, and the doctor said, the, um, the condition has not progressed in any way, so we don't quite know what's happening here. So armed with that encouragement, she continued the same process and went on for another three months. And then after six months, went back to the doctor and he said, you don't have the condition anymore. It's completely gone. And more than 20 years later, all of the people in her support group sadly have died. And she's completely well. So what's the mechanism for the release of God's power. I'll tell you another story. I, I was just a young pastor in the inner city. We were working in a very poor community. And one of the things that the Lord impressed upon me to get me to the place of vulnerability and weakness that I need to get to to be of any use to anybody, he said, I want you to build a large enough cross for you to be crucified on it, and I want you to carry it around the community, and I want you to preach to people in the open air. And I thought, great. <laughs> and, um, and so I did that, and uh, nobody from the church joined me or from my staff joined me because I gave everybody the freedom not to because they all thought that I'd gone completely bonkers. And, you know, it did feel like that. I put my clerical collar on just to give some people in England, clerical collars mean something in England, uh, give the people in, in, in the community a sense that, you know, maybe it was kind of okay. But nobody had ever seen this before. After a little while, people began to join me. And over the months, a large group of people joined me at lunchtime, mostly women, because by and large the church is built on the commitment of women. Guys. And, um, and so we went out onto the streets every day. And then I felt the Lord prompt me. He said, I want to reach somebody who's unreachable. I told this story recently to one of my huddles, and um, my assistant said, you need to tell this to people at church. And I don't know whether I've told you this before, but I went back and I looked more closely at the details. I said to Sally, I feel like the Lord wants me to carry the cross at, in the middle of the night and just pray around the community. And she said, sounds like God. Now, what I was hoping for was, well, let's pray about this, and maybe the Lord will give us another way of interpreting this understanding. Maybe it's something that you should pray for as you're sleeping at night or, you know. No, no, it sounds like God says Sally. So, uh, one night at midnight, I put my clerical collar on. I went outside the kitchen door where the cross was parked, we parked it by, the, by the, the, the kitchen door. And I picked it up and I began to carry it around the community. And, you know, there's people on the streets, of course, but not the people that I would normally meet. And I was very conscious of one particular point 
that there was a car following me. And I looked around, and it was a police car. <laughs> and I stopped and looked at the police car, and the policeman got out, and he said, Good evening, sir. I said, Good evening, officer. He said, uh, Maybe you could just explain to me, sir, what it is that you're doing exactly. I said, well, I'm carrying a cross around the community. He said, yes, 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 I, I understand that, yes. I can see that. But, Vicar, what are you doing out here with a cross? I said, well, I'm praying for the community because I felt God was telling me to do it. He said, oh, all right then. Well, be careful with it, won't you? And he got back into the car and drove away. And I walked around the community for a couple of hours, praying on street corners, and not out loud because you don't want to wake people up, and, um, and went back home and thought, I don't know, I don't know what that was. A couple of days later, one of our visitation teams was knocking on the doors of the government-owned apartment blocks, we call them flats in England, and one man opened the door and said, are you from the local church? The visitation person said, yeah. And he went inside and he said, um, he said I need you to pray with me. He said, well, of course, I'd be glad to do that. He said, I'm a, I'm a survivor of the Holocaust. And um, here's my number. And he showed him the tattooed number on his arm. He said, I'm, I'm going to die very soon. And I'm not kind of sad about it. It's been an amazing life. But I was praying a couple of nights ago for God to show me who the Messiah was. And I got up to get a glass of water and I opened my curtains and there was somebody in the street walking past carrying a cross and his eyes filled with tears he said Jesus, he's the Messiah, isn't he? And he said, yeah. So they prayed together. I didn't remember the first time I told this recently, but actually Bert, the guy who was the visitation person, did take me to speak to, speak to this man. He was, his anglicized name was Matthew. We sat down, talked to one another prayed, and two weeks later he died. Now, you might be asking yourself, what has this got to do with mighty God? Others of you are thinking, well, it sounds mighty to me, but I don't know what the connection is to my life. Last week, I took a risk by sharing with you in a different way. And the reason I did that was because I felt like that's what God told me to do. But it was very vulnerable and very exposing and um, quite demanding. 
But it's been interesting to hear from people through the week of how so many have had a specific breakthrough in their life since then. How does God's power break through? Well, it breaks through like this. The wonderful counselor gets us to recognize what's going on inside, as a good counselor would. And usually the process sounds something like this. You, you name what it is that you recognize inside. You acknowledge it and accept it. You express it, you share what it is that's there. And then for a Christian, there's a release. It's not a release of emotion. It's not, although that can happen, of course. It's not a release of feeling, although, of course, that can happen. There's something else that happens. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, says this, the people that pursued me and have browbeaten me and have sought to make me feel ashamed are like thorns in my flesh. And three times I asked the Lord to remove the thorns in my flesh, and he said, no. My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. You have to name it. You have to acknowledge and accept it. Don't, don't run away from it. Whatever it is, if it's guilt, accept it. It's there. If it's fear, don't run away from it. Embrace it, acknowledge it, it's there. If it's shame, the same thing. If it's frustration... If it's an old memory that causes you heartache and internal suffering, Jesus, I think, wants to speak to us as the wonderful counselor and say, name it. You can name it whatever you want. He gave the capacity to human beings, didn't he, to name all the animals. And, um, you know, we came up with duck-billed platypus. So it doesn't really matter what you name it. Just name it. And acknowledge it. Accept it. Sit with it. Adele is not usually one of my spiritual counselors. I just listen to her for her music. Um, and the slightly overproduced concert that was on recently with uh, Oprah wasn't, it wasn't fully my cup of tea. It was stunningly beautiful and amazing and all of that kind of thing. But there was a little piece in it where she explained the process that she's been going through as she's acknowledged the pain of her past and the ways in which that pain has resulted in the behavior 
of her current life. And she said, I've always been able to articulate the pain in my songs, but now I can sit with it. There it is. This is what the wonderful counselor intends for us. Name it, acknowledge it, accept it. When you accept it, you have to be able to sit with it. It doesn't matter what it's called. Because sitting with it begins to help you recognize that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever it's called, whatever it feels like, whatever other people name it, you're not condemned because of it. You're loved. And as you're accepting this, you begin to understand a greater acceptance that you're accepted, just as you are. And then things begin to change. Because this brokenness, this frailty, this weakness within becomes the mechanism for the mighty God to be revealed. Paul says, his power is made perfect. The word means put together, connected, integrated. The power of God becomes connected, integrated, and able to flow through me as a conduit in the place of weakness. Where you feel most sinful and most ashamed, where you feel most frail and most afraid, right there. God says, I'm right there. I accept you. I, I do not condemn you. I will not turn my face from you. I'll look at you. Will you look at me? And when we look at him, We know that we're accepted and loved. And then his power is able to break through the cold crust of the lava that lies below the surface. And we don't need to pray for fire from heaven because there's fire within we don't need to call for power from the heavens because there's power within. The power that raised Jesus from the dead in us, released in us and through us. There it is. The connection between what the wonderful counselor does and what the mighty God can achieve.
Do you hear it? In the Old Testament, the way that they understood it was words that we've already sung today and that I've mentioned before. But this is how Moses expressed it. He knew God. And these are the few verses right before he climbs Mount Nebo and dies. He says this, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath, underneath are the everlasting arms. You can't fall any further than the everlasting arms. Now, some of you have been trained to hide. Some of you have been trained to pretend. Some of you have been trained to promote other things. And mostly in church. You've been trained to hide stuff because, you know, you're supposed to be a good person. Pretend that everything's awesome because... Joy is spelled Jesus, others, and you last. You're supposed to promote something else about yourself than what's true. But what's true is this you are gloriously broken. You're an earthen vessel with treasure within. With treasure within. And the treasure gets seen through the cracks in the clay. And his power to do and to change, to transform, to heal, to deliver, his power is made perfect. In our what? Just try that one more time. In what? Yeah. Maybe it'd be good if Apex was known for that. Don't you think? That'd be cool. There's a church where weak people can go to find power. There's a place where People who feel shame and fear and guilt can go and encounter the mighty God.